I can't tell you the number of times I've circled the words dismissed. Oh. They felt that they were not listened to. They weren't believed, didn't respect them as human beings. And then there is this kind of overarching theme of negative interactions with caregivers. They felt that a caregiver was demeaning to them, yelled at them, was not kind or compassionate. And we know from the research that that is the biggest predictor of postpartum PTSD. I'm Luke Story. I'm Christine Loria. I'm Natasha Kingsbury. I'm Angie Check. I am Dr. Aaron Eugene McMorrow. I'm Ben Joseph Stewart. I'm Bliss Young. I am Dr. Jacob Egbert. I'm Kyle Kingsbury. I'm Lily Nichols. I'm Mark Groves. I'm Sarah Gustafson. I'm Jesse Golden. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein. I'm Marin Green. I'm Kelly Brogan, MD. Hi, this is Kimberly Ann Johnson. Je m'appelle Chris Safris, et c'est le podcast du Chidicolo. Hello, I'm Paul Check, and this is the Holistic OBGYN Podcast. Enjoy. My guest today on the Holistic OBGYN Podcast is a very special mentor to me. Her name's Tracy Vogel. She's an MD, and she is a practicing obstetric anesthesiologist in the West Penn Allegheny Health Network system in Western PA, big competitor of UPMC. So she's this anesthesiologist. She spends her clinical time, in the hospital anyways, attending to women who desire epidurals, who have to have C-sections. She's the anesthesiologist on staff. And I met her when I was rotating there as a medical student. I was a medical student at Temple University, and the first two years are really hard book work. The second two years, you rotate in every department, basically, every major medical specialty, surgery, OBGYN, family medicine, et cetera. And when I was on my, I think my neo or my pediatrics rotation, I remember meeting Tracy because I happened to be on the peds side of the maternity unit. And I saw this person in the operating room providing such tender, compassionate care to the patients. And I hadn't ever really seen that from an anesthesiologist. But despite having a mask on, we all wear masks even, even before COVID in the operating room, even with a mask on and even with a blue tarp, you know, centimeters in front of the pregnant woman's face about to have a C-section, she seemed to have this sensibility about her to really help a person feel comfortable and safe and warm. And I don't think that there's any magic tricks to what Tracy does, but I knew that there was something special about how she interacted with these women who are otherwise going through this very scary ordeal of having a C-section. So I asked if I could rotate with her for a few weeks in my program. They were very gracious in allowing me to rotate with Tracy. And I learned so much from her in two weeks. I learned so much about spinal anesthesia and intrathecal, different medications we use in the epidural and this in the um, intrathecal space. And more importantly, though, I learned about what a person's experience in the role of an OB anesthesiologist, what incredible information they're able to glean from the birth experience. They're not the surgeon. They're not the patient. They're not the partner of the patient, but they actually get to be with them and make them feel safe during these scary moments. And through her work, because she's so thoughtful and because she's so attuned to just how important this experience is and how it could be so much better, she's actually extended her education to include 
some of the most insightful writing and speaking on the topic of birth trauma. And she completed training as a sexual assault counselor and eventually developed a perinatal trauma-informed care clinic within the Allegheny Health Network. And this is really one of the only clinics like this. And it just so happens that I did my training at this facility with this incredible doctor. Through this process or this service, she offers comprehensive trauma-informed care for all birthing people, especially those that have a history of previous trauma. She works a lot in the shared decision-making process and the birth planning process, and she's a master at multidisciplinary collaboration and communication. So she's been traveling the country, speaking at all of the major conferences, really trying to help impress upon people that even for a healthy mom, healthy baby, unmedicated, undisturbed hospital birth, that sometimes women were still feeling unseen, unheard, or maybe not even really treated as a person. And so when we talk about birth trauma in this episode, we're not just talking about obstetric violence or non-consensual episiotomy. We're talking about women who are having the typical, even unmedicated vaginal birth, but feel like something was just off about that experience. And when we don't integrate these experiences, when we don't integrate any stressor in our life, it can be carried in the body as trauma. So this is what Tracy's doing now. I feel very, very fortunate to know her, and I'm so grateful that we've kept in touch over the years. I think you're going to really, really love this conversation. But before we do that, let me tell you very, very quickly about the sponsors. Remember, we can't do a show like this without our amazing sponsors. And when I have a company reach out that wants to support the show, I've had people offer a lot of money for me to read ads and to support them in this way. But I want to make sure that I bring in companies that are fully in alignment with who I am and what we're trying to do here at the Holistic OBGYN podcast. So without further ado, there are five companies that have made this episode possible. Full Well Fertility makes the best prenatal vitamin on the market. I've had Ayla Barmer, the creator of this brand, on the podcast. Listen to her speak. She is just such a lovely breath of fresh air. In her fertility and maternity-focused clinic, she found that she wasn't totally sure what the quality control of prenatal vitamins was. And virility vitamins and fish oils. So she dove into the manufacturing process and not only created incredible products, but oversees the entire process whereby they're encapsulated, they're packaged and sent off. So you know you're getting the highest quality and her vitamins are packed with nutrition far beyond what you'll find in any even fancy health food store. So it's the only brand I recommend. They've got a prenatal vitamin, a men's virility vitamin for those of us who don't have great sperm, strong swimmers, etc. There's a fish oil and they have a Nourish Nerves tonic. If you want to try any of their products, go to fullwellfertility.com, use code BELOVED10 and you will save yourself 10%. Immune Intel HCC is another company that is so near and dear to me. Mimi Lindquist and her partner Chase Ramey have put together this incredible formula. HCC stands for Active Hexose Correlated Compound. And there is a wide range of clinical research demonstrating the added benefit to a healthy lifestyle of immune intel to clearing persistent HPV. This is what I'm most excited about, but it also helps with autoimmune conditions, chronic Lyme, cancer, acne, autoimmune-related skin disorders, things like herpes, etc. And the reason that it's able to do these really profound things is that it increases the number of immune cells that are circulating, specifically NK and T cells, by about 300%. But it also encourages those cells to communicate better between one another. So basically, if you have any immune dysregulatory issue, Immune Intel HCC is going to help at least improve 
the condition that you're suffering from, if not get rid of it altogether, simply by helping to reorchestrate this delicate immune system. Also, because the immune system and your adrenals work so closely together, it'll also help to balance out your stress hormones. It will decrease your systemic inflammation as a consequence of getting your immune system back on track. I love this product. If you want to try it out, go to themedicine.com slash products. That's T-H-E-M-E-D-I-C-I-N.com slash products. Use code BELOVED10 and you'll save 10%. If you've got persistent HPV, my recommendation is to try this product for two to three months every single day and then have them repeat your PAP and your HPV and just to see how it goes. I've had, at this point, dozens of women now who've reached out after taking advantage of this product and they say, like, the problem has dissipated. But of course, this is just an insurance policy to an already healthy lifestyle. So if you need any help with that, you can reach out to the medicine and their team there will definitely get your questions answered. And of course, you can always lean on me, your resident holistic OBGYN. BirthFit is also supporting this episode. BirthFit is a pregnancy and postpartum specific lifestyle training program. They have this incredible community on their website at birthfit.com. It's called their B community. They bring in expert speakers in webinar format twice a month. I'm going to be speaking at the time of this recording. It's actually going to be in a couple of days from now. And this community, you're going to get insights into how to exercise, how to eat, how to live the healthiest lifestyle you can in order to optimize your pregnancy and childbirth experience. You'll get strength and conditioning advice, human movement foundations, corn and pelvic floor basins, nutritional advice, sleep advice. This is a truly comprehensive prenatal training program. And so it's a community where you'll be able to ask questions and get your questions answered. And of course, you get these incredible webinars. Go to birthfit.com and use code BELOVED and you'll get one month free access as a special offer to the Holistic OBGYN audience. Thereafter, it's only $24.99 per month. But once you get into this, you're going to love it. I assure you of that. We also have Organifi. I don't need to promote them too much because everybody out there knows how incredible Organifi is. I really, really love their red juice, which contains beets, functional mushrooms. For me, it's a natural replacement for caffeine on those days that I need an extra boost. At night, I use their gold. It's antioxidant-rich ingredients like turmeric and ginseng. There's also some functional mushrooms blended in there. And if you add like a scoop of whole fat organic coconut milk, it actually is a great way to end your night and ease into sleep for the night. If you want to try out any of Organifi's products, again, the red and the gold are my favorites. I also like the green. And for my female listeners, their Cacao Harmony Blend is amazing. Go to Organifi.com slash beloved or use code beloved and you will save 20%. And then last but not least, of course, is Bioptimizers. Bioptimizers just continues to roll out incredible products. I've been using their sleep breakthrough recently, and it has a combination of amino acids, L-tryptophan, magnesium, some lemon balm. There's a whole cascade of really, really natural ingredients that are not only antioxidant rich, but they just help to calm down that sympathetic overdrive that so many of us, especially those of us in the medical professions are experiencing they recommend up to four scoops per night. I would recommend starting with one to two scoops, but man, does it get you to sleep fast and you wake up feeling so refreshed. You're able to hit the ground running with your workouts, with your business, with your kiddos. I love this company so much. If you want to try out their sleep breakthrough, go to bioptimizers.com slash holistic OBGYN or just use code beloved at checkout and you'll save 10%. All right, I hope I'm not getting a, too long-winded for everybody. Without further ado, please welcome my dear friend and mentor and an amazing doctor who's providing such needed care in our maternity system, Dr. Tracy Vogel. 
Tracy, what is the essence of birth trauma? This is something that you just described as it's blowing up in such a way. Is there more birth trauma or more people identifying with trauma that has happened to them in the pregnancy and childbirth or even postpartum process? I think it's both. I think we are starting now to raise awareness about how common birth trauma is. So more women are able to talk about it. We are starting to develop pathways to listen, maybe to get some of these individuals in for mental health therapy. So I think that's part of it is that more people are talking about it. But I also think with the medicalization of childbirth and how we are so geared towards interventions, and we're seeing more and more hemorrhage, for example, those births tend to be traumatic for individuals. And we know that more and more of our patients are presenting to pregnancy older. They are sicker or have comorbid diseases. And I think by definition, we're going to see more physical complications, which can also be associated with psychological trauma. So I think we're seeing both. And like I said, there's more awareness. So we're seeing it more in the lay press as well. How do most people who maybe, let's say, I don't know, even 10 years ago, maybe they would say, oh, fooey to the birth trauma thing, but then maybe they have something happen to them. It isn't what people are necessarily thinking. What we're not t- necessarily only talking about is hold her down. I've got to check the cervix and somebody shoves something inside of you or somebody does a procedure to you that you don't feel was fully consensual. That of course is a big part of birth trauma, but there's also women that go into the hospital. They say, I had a healthy mom, healthy baby. Everything was totally fine, but something didn't feel right. When you start working with them, and my wife actually used a little bit of that language. I don't think she would ever use the word traumatic, but I don't think she felt totally comfortable with how things went in the hospital. Despite the nursing staff there knowing me as an OBGYN who used to work there, despite us being very close to our doctor who was very hands-off, an amazing doctor, Dr. Reed Nett here in Louisville, Kentucky, something just didn't feel right for her. So when you start opening up the doors for women to talk about their experiences, what is the language that they're using so that maybe somebody who's listening can relate to this, not just being the true obstetric violence, maybe on the one extreme, but perhaps just some part about being in this medicalized maternity care system in the United States. What are they telling you? What have you been surprised by maybe? Great question. When I see patients in my clinic, I take old-fashioned notes as I'm talking to them. And when I hear certain themes or words come across, I circle them. And I can't tell you the number of times I've circled the words dismissed. They felt that they were not listened to. They weren't believed. People just blew them off didn't respect them as human beings. Another word that I hear all the time are feelings of helplessness and terror, which can accompany a lot of different emergency situations, fear for the life of their child. That feeling of terror meets some of the criteria for a definition of trauma by the DSM-5. And so that's part of it. And then there is this kind of overarching theme of negative interactions with caregivers. They felt that a caregiver was demeaning to them, yelled at them, was not kind or compassionate. And we know from the research that that is probably the biggest predictor of postpartum PTSD is feelings of helplessness, loss of control, and negative interactions with caregivers. So nobody tends to think about that. We think, oh, sure, someone had a major complication like bleeding or hemorrhage 
oh, of course, that makes sense to us. She would be traumatized from that, perhaps. But we don't think about our own behaviors as providers and the words that we're using and how important they are. Yeah. And in, instead of using the words to build on strengths that individuals have and the resilience that they have, we may inadvertently be harming them because of the words we are choosing to use. And so it goes unseen a lot of times. There's no box on the chart that says traumatized because people were nasty to her <laughs> or to the birthing person. Right. It doesn't get recognized as much as something else might, but it is definitely an underlying theme with a lot of the women that I work with. Yeah, I appreciate you saying all of that because we as physicians, we have long been revered for our capacities to care for people. And I think that the caring for people starts with the first time that they're coming to you and asking for your advice or your support. And when we dismiss that as like, oh, geez, another one of these, or oh boy, another person with sexual abuse or whatever, let's give this one. I would always be the guy that got that because I was happy to just sit there and talk with them throughout all of residency. In fact, I was scolded because I would spend too much time talking to people. But I could tell there was something to this person's story. There's some part of this story that hasn't been told. And I actually think even from a physiologic level, I think this is going to perhaps cause some issues in the childbirth process. This is already scary. It can be exciting, can be pleasurable for a lot of women, but it doesn't make it any less sort of formidable as this unknown thing that your body's about to go through. Your body's going to open up, release this baby, close up, and then now you're a parent. That's a really hard thing to go through. So understanding a person's story way in advance of this really exciting ride they're about to take and to minimize it down. I'm thinking about a roller coaster. It's like once you're at the top, there's no way you can say, I don't want to go anymore. You have to go down the big hill. I don't think that a lot of physicians remember that. I don't think that it's modeled for them. Now, you and I worked together when I was in medical school, and I remember seeing something a little bit different about how you approached people. They liked you immediately. And I was like, I want my patients to like me immediately. So how can I do that? You know, in residency, I remember them teaching us, we had like a lunchtime workshop on bedside manner. And I was thinking, shouldn't we have like somehow worked this out before we got to the place where we're actually D on our chest or DO or nurse practitioner or CNM or whatever? Shouldn't we have worked this out before we got to this place? But as a result of it being modeled and us practicing perhaps bad behavior, if we can call it that, I think it's hard to roll that back. So as an anesthesiologist, oftentimes you actually use this words and you can correct me if you've changed, but you said, I'm kind of the ultimate customer service agent on the maternity <laughs> unit because you're going okay. in there and meeting them when they're at the peak of their threshold. I have had enough of the pain. This has been a really long induction, whatever. And you then have to kind of pick up where the OBGYN left off and help them reground. So before they even get to your office, what are some of the strategies that you've learned or that, do you still teach residents, by the way, or med students? I do in a variety of settings. And I do a lot of trainings now across Pennsylvania okay. and I've been going across the country Yeah, Good. to teach about trauma awareness. and On the world tour. Yeah, exactly. So if you're asking, I see patients now. What are some of the things that maybe you can pull out of your training? When I meet someone in my clinic, which is very unique, by the way, most anesthesiologists don't have that opportunity to meet someone in their eighth week of pregnancy, let's say. 
and have an hour to sit with them and talk. But the skills are similar. What's important is establishment of trust. I think in the culture we're in now with medicine, we have to shift from this concept of trust is a given. I think in the 50s, maybe physicians were revered and we would come in and trust them fully to have our best interest at heart. Well, there are so many reasons why individuals, groups of people don't trust establishments. And now with social media, it's gotten even worse. And so we have to go into this with an idea that we have to earn trust. It's not just going to be there because I'm a doctor and you're a patient. It's not there anymore. And that's step one. And I think most providers have to get to that acceptance that, okay, I need to do something to work towards trust with this person, right? Right. So how do I do that? And the first thing that I do with my individuals is to ask them simple things. How do you pronounce your name? What do you like to be called? Who are you and how would you like me to treat you? So that's step one, super easy. I ask them. And then the second thing I do right off the bat is tell them who I am and what my role is in their care. So like the customer service person, sit down. Now my visits are virtual, but if I see a patient in person, sit down at their level and talk to them like a human being. Introduce yourself. They don't always know who you are. And most of the patients I see in my clinic will tell me, a hundred people came into my room. I don't know who they were. Half of them had their name tags backwards as if they all had permission to be there, but yet none of them really asked if it was okay to be there. That's right. They just assumed they could come into that room. And so establishing what your role is, and then also saying to that person, this is a partnership. I'm here to guide you, but I also need to learn about who you are, where you're coming from. So understanding someone in their cultural context and allowing them that permission to share and that it's a safe space and that you're not going to be there to judge them. You just want to learn about where they're coming from. So those are the first two minutes of a conversation that can set someone off in the wrong direction or totally bring someone in to say, okay, this person's okay. I think I'm going to open up a little bit. And I would say things not to do in the moment is to come in with a big computer if you're in the hospital, not even make eye contact Mm. and start asking somebody questions. Like that's the difference, right? Yeah. I think OBGYNs are in a tough place. I think people know me as the guy who really tries to push back the training that I received or on the, not necessarily even the training that I received, but the whole essence of medical education, where I think we've kind of mixed up our roles a little bit. But in the defense of OBGYNs, you have to consider that 70% of the time they're doing surgery on people that have obvious pathologies. You know, there's a 70-year-old African-American woman who comes in with horrendous fibroids. Perhaps there's some concern for cancer. In that situation, right, you go into like problem-solving mode, fix-it mode. I'm going to use my golden hands and my sutures and maybe my laparoscopic instruments to help fix your problem. In other words, you're kind of on my turf. Like you came into my operating room suite and I'm going to take care of you, but this is how we're going to do it. Even in that situation, I think it really helps for a surgeon to start building trust really early on with their patient. But in the maternity unit, you may have never met this person before. Like they may have never seen you because you're one of five people in a practice and you rotate call every 72 hours or whatever, which 
is unfortunately what a lot of OBGYN practices still do. It's not like where I trained at Kaiser where there's 50 people to cover call and you maybe do call once a month. So you go in on your Wednesday evening shift, you're making your rounds to meet everybody, and you are suggesting perhaps let's just spend two minutes building trust. Like the questions you asked are just basic human things. You shouldn't have to go to med school to appreciate just the importance of that early bonding period with a person who's entrusted their health care to you. Do you think if you were to change anything about, let's say, medical school or residency education, what could we do instead of having a lunchtime bedside manner talk, which I think was completely ridiculous, like we were all chuckling because it was ridiculous, but Kaiser was trying to get us there. What could we do a little bit better? Like, how would you like to see medical education change? Well, one thing, and I'm writing this in one of the chapters of my book, is when we think about how we're trained, we take the disease. We learn about it from a cellular level. We build on it. What does it look like logically? What does it look like in the body? So we take the disease and then bring it out and superimpose it on the person. And then that's how we're going to treat it. What if we flipped that and understood the patient more? Like, what if we learned more about behaviors? What if we learned more about what's it like to have trauma in the past? What's it like to live with racism in the past? What does that do to behaviors of an individual? And then put the disease on top. All of our cures and treatments and interventions, they're of no use if we don't understand that a patient can't even get to the hospital, that a patient can't ride the bus, can't do X, Y, or Z, that the things that bring them to you, if they can't come to you, none of our treatments are useful, right? So I think maybe understanding behaviors, a little more psychological training, behavioral training, I think that should be at the core. I didn't learn that until I went to the Rape Crisis Center and took their training. And I thought, wow, that would have been useful had I learned that 15 years ago. Yeah. Right? Something very basic. Yeah. Are you able to provide maybe some demographics as to where you're seeing trauma happening? Is it predominantly women of color? Is it predominantly women who have a history of some unrelated trauma? Is it socioeconomic? Or are you seeing it across the board? It's across the board. I've been asked this question before. It's different, different kinds of trauma. Women of color, they have chronic traumatic stress from chronic racism. And they come to us, they distrust, but they've been dismissed over and over again. And they're hearing about how that is contributing to the maternal mortality rate for our Black women and that population. I see plenty of women of varying colors, socioeconomic backgrounds, wealth, education. They have different types of traumas, but they also come with previous birth trauma. And so that's another trauma we can put in there. Yeah, Medical trauma from the past is another type. So it's across the board. I mean, trauma is pervasive, all different types. And I think that's why it's so important to have some training in trauma awareness and understanding what does that do to people? How does that alter their health physiologically? How does that alter how they behave in the medical centers? How does that alter how they connect and understand their disease processes? And I just think because it's so pervasive, we all need that training. You probably have some sense that after working with a person who did experience a birth trauma, when they are preparing or they go through a subsequent pregnancy, that things maybe go a little bit better. It's maybe not uniformly. Maybe we're tooting our horns a little too much. Why is that? Like, why is 
getting this trauma, talking about this trauma early and routinely, perhaps, for women who are ready to talk about it, of course, why is this relevant and important for their future pregnancies, if it is at all? Well, those that come through to see me and they're in that subsequent pregnancy, I think a lot of the preparation is about giving them a sense of control, giving that back to them. Because with any trauma, that loss of control is often a big part of it. And so letting them know that they have choice, they have control over various parts. Now, we know that there are some elements of a birth that you don't have control over. Many. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell new parents to be just, just wait. You know, you're going to become a parent. You're going to learn that your children are going to do things that you don't want them to do even later on, and you can't control everything. It starts when they're inside. But giving them a sense of control is important. Allowing them to have validation for what happened to them is huge. That's a lot of the work I do is giving them a space to tell their story. A lot of individuals never had that opportunity after their previous traumatic birth, after being dismissed with a chronic condition, after having childhood trauma. A lot of them never had a space to talk about it. That alone is huge. Yeah. Because then they have someone who's not going to say to them, Oh, but you had a healthy baby. Let's move on. Let's talk about the logistics. It's let me validate that for you. That was horrible, right? No wonder you felt this way. And we talk about it. And then we really dig in and talk about what was so bad about that in the past, because this is how we're going to intervene and make it different the next time around, right? Right. They tell me, right. They really need to avoid an emergency situation. We talk about all the different pathways to say maybe a scheduled C-section is the right path for you. So it's, it's understanding their potential triggers for an upcoming delivery, giving them some say in what happens, thinking differently and more creatively about, hey, let's keep your significant other with you the entire time in the operating room if necessary. Let's break some rules. A lot of these rules are really defined anywhere. It's just a practice habit that people have. But there are a lot of things that we can do that are simple, inexpensive, decrease the stress on the individual, and actually add a lot of reassurance and promoting that positive birth experience for the individual. I had a woman reach out to me the other day and she said, you know, enough birth stories. You know, I'm tired of birth stories. And it made me really thoughtful and kind of feel a little bit sad about the practice of storytelling. It's a closing ceremony to talk about your story, whether it was birth-related trauma or not related you know, to birth or whatever, just something exciting that happened. There's that closure that happens that's like, oh, I feel complete. I feel like I can move on. But because we've fallen out of the practice of ritual and ceremony around anything in life, you know, for that matter, but especially the birth of your baby, I find that a lot of women who come to me, the first question I always ask, Tracy, which it's like I'm connecting with you telepathically is tell me about your previous birth, especially if they had a really hard time in the hospital. Just tell me your, your birth story. 50-50, they're going to end up in tears and they're going to thank me afterwards because they haven't had the opportunity to tell that story. So I think that there is therapy in that alone. I want to change gears a tiny bit. Of all of the tools that we're starting to see utilized within clinical medicine, the psychedelics and ketamine conversation is quite interesting, and MDMA is quite interesting to me. 
Have you explored any of those modalities for people who have had horrendous traumas in the past and maybe as a means of facilitating that closure or working through or out of that trauma? I personally have not done that, not yet. Somewhere down the road, I'm hoping to get some more training in these trauma interventions. But I do refer patients whenever I think it's necessary for EMDR, which is kind of a non-medication type of NMDA. Is that the like something with eye movement or tapping or something? Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. That's what it stands for. But it can be done with lights. It can be done with movement. It's really going from right side of the brain to left side of the brain over and over. And from what I understand, it relaxes the brain a little bit so that people can then do cognitive behavioral therapy and talk about their experience without all the physiologic response, like feeling sick, that visceral sickness that comes with it. So it helps them to talk through it and feel safe. I think that some of our psychedelics do something very similar and I have heard great things about them. So I'm hoping that that can be something that's offered as well as the EMDR and cognitive behavioral therapy. Now, ketamine, we just had a recent conversation about ketamine. I think the verdict is still out. And for some individuals, ketamine, if it's used with not the right dosage for someone with known PTSD, may not be the best drug. I've had patients come to me who had horrific hallucinations, they dissociated, they didn't feel like themselves, they didn't feel like they were part of the birth experience. So I think it has potential, but we're just not sure the right way to use it. I have used it for my individuals who have opiate tolerance, who also we know most likely have come from trauma, but very, very low dose as a background infusion during a C-section to help with pain relief but not enough to cause that type of psychological disruption. Wow. But it has potential. So you're using it for its anesthetic properties as well, mm-hmm. the, the yes. ketamine. Wow. Mm-hmm. During a C-section, I, I don't think I've ever thought about that or heard about that. And that would be for a patient who does have a history of opioid abuse, or I don't know what the right word is nowadays, but let's say opioid tolerance in the very least, that you know you're not going to get the most bang for your buck from a spinal anesthetic. Is that why you chose that? That is correct. Okay. We try to bring in as many different modalities as we can, other than using additional opiates, if we think they're not going to be as effective and we want to have good pain relief for them. So yeah, we've tried ketamine. There's some good evidence that works. Again, staying on the lower end of the dosing parameters, because I don't want to see these individuals get to that point of dissociation or not remembering. Because one of the things that I explain to my patients all the time is we might need to give some medicine for anxiety in the operating room. And there are some safe choices, but we want to keep it as low as possible because in order for them to get post-traumatic growth and healing from a positive birth experience, they have to remember the birth experience. So I run this fine line. It's like a tightrope. I don't want them to be have so much terror that they are dissociating or on the ceiling from panic, but I don't want to give them so much medicine that they are asleep, sedated, and they don't remember anything. So working with them so they accept a level of nervousness, but know that it's because we want them to remember that everything else around them is positive. But I think there are definitely some potentials. Now back to using some of these medicines immediately after a traumatic birth, 
I am exploring more and more about, is anybody doing research in this area? If we know someone had a significant hemorrhage, for example, we know that increases their risk for postpartum mental health issues. Should we automatically be doing EMDR before they leave the hospital? Would that help? Could we use some of these psychedelics within the first week? Would that help? There's some evidence out there that steroids given in and around that time might actually decrease the risk for PTSD. So all of those might come into play, but again, we don't know enough yet. Research is just being done, just coming out, but it's, I'm hopeful that we might be able to add some help after a traumatic event has occurred. When my wife and I got pregnant with our first Penelope Luce, we didn't get pregnant right away. It took us several months dialing in lifestyle, dialing in sleep, um, tracking fertility awareness like cervical mucus, etc. And then suddenly when we had the figures right, bam, she revealed it to me and I was so ecstatic. It was exaltation. What a burden off my shoulders. We got pregnant. And it was that moment where I really became dedicated to trying to help couples achieve that same experience of exaltation. The problem was that my training as an OBGYN left me with synthetic hormones, a lot of imaging and other procedures without really the toolkit to look upstream for the reasons for which these fertility challenges are presenting in the first place. So from my time in residency, I've explored a lot of other modalities, and I've come up with a really, really clever strategy, which starts with a bunch of functional medicine testing, liver detox, working with the second chakra, working in through the yin as opposed to this excess yang that we've all been incentivized to utilize. I've read a number of books and done quite a bit of studying in other areas. And what it has led me to is this special offering that is exclusive to Beloved Holistics. And it's a truly holistic approach to fertility. It's my Patience, Reverence, and Presence Fertility Program. That's PRP. And it starts exactly as I described. But you don't just meet with me. You meet with a breath worker. You meet with an NLP embodiment coach. You meet with a metaphysical counselor and check practitioner. You meet with a functional nutritionist and licensed acupuncturist. You meet with a Chinese medicine and German new medicine practitioner. You're going to meet with a psychic medium. You're going to go through art therapy, qigong, tai chi. You're going to learn some foundational movement patterns. You're going to become more flexible. You're going to become stronger. You're going to become detoxified. You're going to become well-nourished. We're going to go through diet, movement, sleep, breath, mindset, hydration. We're going to dial all of that in. And with the purchase of your PRP program, not only do you get all these books and supplements and vitamins and the detox and the Dutch testing and all of this, a meeting with other practitioners, you also get access to my new natural fertility course. It's an online self-guided course at the Czech Institute. And you're going to get a vaginal steaming consultation with vaginal steaming herbs. This is really, really the whole package that will help you either conceive naturally, or if you do end up going the route of IVF, we're going to get you as healthy as possible so that that twelve dollars to $15,000 investment is worthwhile and you get a baby out of the deal. Otherwise, you may find yourself going back for a second or a third round, or if you do get pregnant with IVF, we know that that's an independent risk factor for a lot of pregnancy complications unless you dial in your health and we look upstream to figure out what was the cause of these fertility challenges in the first place. 
So if you want to find out more information about the PRP Fertility Program at Beloved Holistics, go to BelovedHolistics.com slash PRP. You'll find a wealth of information there. If you have any doubts or need more information, need answers for your questions, you can always book a free discovery call also on the website. All right, let's get back to this incredible conversation. I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, everything you're describing with regards to something happening between the left and the right side of the brain, we're looking at the, is it called the corpus callosum? Do I remember that correctly? <laughs> Where so, fibers yeah. cross over. So you've got your left hemisphere, your right hemisphere for people listening. And those two hemispheres, they communicate through, I believe it's called the corpus callosum. I'm not a brain guy, but with the, what is it? EMDR? Is that what it's called EMDR. again? I've yeah. heard it so many times that I get Okay, EMDR. We're like it's like we're relieving some sort of traffic jam between the left and right side of the brain. But even unilateral exercise and whatnot, you know, like for example, in an exercise setting, we know that exercise helps with depression, anxiety, etc. It could be that perhaps that is doing something to the brain. This movement, this proprioceptive awareness, perhaps helps to get that junk, you know, out of the way. And it doesn't surprise me that something that is so disassociative, like ketamine might actually help with that as well. Like, let's get you away from that. Let's let that traffic jam clear up and then we can go back to normal functioning. This is obviously the way that Tracy and I are speaking. This is obviously an area that requires quite a bit more clinical, let's say, investigation before we can say for sure why these things happen. But to sort of turn another corner, you mentioned something that I want to close with, which is that if they're going to heal from their trauma, and I'm going to replace that word, I'm going to say, let's say heal through their next birth. I know that you and I have talked a little bit about that. Can you describe that? What do you mean when you say that birth can be a healing experience? I can say this through the words of the patients that I've worked with. Right? This is how they describe it. It is life altering. It's that sense of, I don't want to say it, it's not accomplishment. It's just a I don't know what's the right word here. Ecstatic almost. They have such a positive experience and they see now how good it can be. And I think also if you allow them that empowerment through their work leading up to the delivery, they know that that's all them. They did this. They worked through their fears. They were able to advocate for themselves. They were able to talk about their previous experience. They own that. They did Mm. it. And then they also have that, I I would think it's a rush of of this positive emotions that flow, hopefully in this setting now where there's not so much fear, lack of control. They also get probably more release of that oxytocin. They might even get to do that bonding a little bit earlier. All of the physiologic things are happening in a more positive direction. The respect that they have from others, and then they feel for themselves. Like I said, it's an empowerment. And I think all of those things go together to help them afterwards. I just think on such a different trajectory after that next one. And that's something that we're following. We're getting ready to do some analysis of data. So the people that I've worked with, we want to see this kind of preliminary work and getting them a positive birth. Does that equate to decreased symptom severity for mental health symptoms, let's say? If they have anxiety or depression, do we see that to a lesser degree then? 
afterwards? Does it allow them better pain control because they had a better experience? We knew about them. We knew about their needs. We met those needs. Does that mean that they use less opiates? Yes. I I can tell anecdotally. Absolutely. These patients do really well. They make less visits to the emergency room. They know they have safety nets built in. They know who they can reach out to if they need something. It's totally different for them. So I've had a number of women who have described exactly what you're describing, and they went the way of home birth, which is a large part of my community because I'm an advocate for home birth for many women. They come to me with you know, these stories. I can't tell you how many women who have described that in the way that you just you know, related to me after having a home birth. And the reason they chose a home birth, even if it was like after previous C-section, like they're going all the way over in the other direction. They've described it as healing in ways that they don't feel they could have achieved with the number of interventions that happen in the hospital with a way that they feel dismissed, the number of eyeballs on their naked body, you know, like all of that just didn't feel right to them. So in the home birth environment, of course, it's very different. But to take it one step further, I've actually had women reach out to me and say that through my birth, whether it was in the hospital or home, I don't remember, it's not relevant. I was able to kick the resulting sort of, I don't want to say pathology, but the resulting symptoms of a childhood trauma that I had. And the words that they've used, Tracy, over and over, like you circle words on your paper, the words I circle are that I feel like I healed my trauma from my childhood abuse when I became a mother through having an autonomous birth. And that autonomous word was really important to them, that I got to make decisions for me, for my baby, and I owned the outcome, which you know, in their case was a beautiful baby on their chest in their bedroom, just like my wife and I had a little over a year ago. So this healing through an otherwise traumatic experience, which in some ways birth is going to be traumatic no matter what. It's the integration of the experience, I think, that results in long-term trauma versus just that was really stressful and exciting. And of course, if you have closure, you know, and whatnot, it doesn't have to be traumatic, but the way that it's treated like a medical procedure doesn't seem to lend itself to that healing experience that so many women you know, describe. And it all starts with them having planted their ground firmly as a strong woman. And that old person was allowed to die. That person who was traumatized as a child or taken advantage of or abused in some way, whether it was the, at the hands of a doctor doing an unnecessary episiotomy or something like that, they were able to let that go as a result of owning and partaking in this beautiful, undisturbed birthing process, which I find is a pretty compelling reason for people finding their way to home birth or even a birth center birth. So I'm going to give you a hard question now. Is the only way for us to heal from birth trauma, well, if we want people to have that experience, should we as an industry start to rethink the necessary nature of having a baby in a hospital with all of the blinking lights and the beeping machines and everything. What do you think? Well, I'm definitely in favor of home births, the right individuals, the ones that we know meet criteria that to be safe, to do that. Absolutely. Do I think we're using too much intervention, too many lights and beeps? Absolutely. My vision would be to create some sort of a hybrid where, and let's face it, the majority of individuals still deliver in a hospital. And even those that choose to deliver in a birthing center, let's say, 
they may choose that because they have longstanding chronic traumatic stress. They may be the ones to develop hypertension and need to be then transferred to the hospitals at 35 weeks where they then know no one and they're put in this awful environment. It's a problem. I would love to see everything get shifted and we get rid of so much of this tethering and monitors and lights and medicalization. Again, I'd love to see a hybrid. I'd love to see a hybrid type of anesthetic work for people. Bring back the walking epidural so patients can still just get something little. Those that need it or truly want that because pain for them is a trigger and they need some help. But let's not give them something that they're forced to stay in bed. Why not just do something that they can still move, still feel like they're doing a lot of the things they need to do? I think there's a lot that we can do. We need to change the culture and how people think it has to be done. And that's the hardest part is changing a culture. A lot of the work I do are simple, inexpensive, as I mentioned, interventions, no fancy equipment, just takes the providers to switch gears in how they approach patients. And honestly, that is the hardest thing to change. But I do think we should be supporting more of these home births. Again, if they have the right environment, it's safe to do so. We need more of you out there that if you attend to these home births, you have this experience. It's a beautiful thing. It is. But for those that are delivering in the hospital, my goal is to try to create that environment that mimics your home births, but tries to get them that same sense of accomplishment and empowerment and autonomy over their choices, right? But especially if they have to be in a hospital setting especially in an operating room, which is the most sterile, foreign, terrifying environment for almost So alien. Yes, it's terrible. I mean, I've started bringing women in to get a tour of the operating room. I've done virtual tours with them and it helps. It really helps so that they can make it their own. It's not their bedroom, but we talk about what can we do to make you feel like it's safe and we can put blinds on the windows and we keep them covered with the Vogel spa method, as I call it, you know, things like that. But again, it's just trying to mimic what the ideal would be at home, like what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's going to take an army and it's going to take all our researchers out there putting out this data to show that women will do better if we do X, Y, or Z and change our approach. One final question, Tracy, because you are an anesthesiologist, you specialize in obstetric anesthesiology, which is, you know, you're a rare breed. There aren't that many people that really go the extra distance to focus on that. Some people like it, but you really have like doubled and tripled down on your experience with maternity care. Can you just real quickly talk about in your dreamscape, you know, you've got all the resources, you are the queen of the castle. What would you like people to know? who are on the healthcare side about how we can improve the C-section experience? Like what is the best scenario based on your understanding of the procedure and what women are telling you after they've gone through? Perhaps I feel like every C-section is a little bit traumatic. It's just a hard, really hard thing to go through, but it doesn't have to be perhaps. What would you like to see change in those operating rooms? First of all, I'd say, let's think about the environment itself. There are some physical things that can change in operating rooms. They don't have to be stark white. (laughs) They don't. Mm. We can have the walls painted a slightly different color. The temperature can be changed, keeping patients warm. I also think about what works well 
that I've seen is again, keeping that significant other with the individual. Do not separate them, not even for a spinal or an epidural. No to arm straps. Like the individual is going to be rendered paralyzed from the breast down. So let's keep their arms warm and cozy on their chest. Plan for that ahead of time. Have the significant other holding their hand or right there with them at the head of the bed. I think the room needs to be calm and quiet. So we have to minimize traffic. We do not need 16 people in an operating room for a scheduled C-section. I've counted that many before. 16. 16. And it's because we have so many trainees from the NICU teams, the nursing side, the anesthesia side. Maybe we need to focus on just having a certain number in the operating room. So minimizing traffic and only have those people in the room that the individuals know are going to be there. Maybe even have them meet them ahead of time, just even to say, hello, this is our person who's going to be handling the instruments. She's wonderful. Here, meet the patient, right? Everyone should meet them. Even residents should not be saying hello for the first time when an individual is on the table with the spinal kicking in. I don't think that's appropriate. I think we need to focus on what I call trauma awareness standards, but it's also part of our ERAC, as we call it, early recovery after cesarean. Early recovery and, yeah. <laughs> after surgery is the ERAS, but it's the same ERAS, yeah. <laughs> yeah, ERAC, as we call it, is making sure our individuals are not nauseated. And we can do that. We have all the technology now. They should not be vomiting after a spinal. It's horrible for an experience. Keeping them warm with as many modalities as we need to. Taking care of pain, which is a big one. Anticipating who's going to have altered pain thresholds, especially if they come from a history of anxiety, previous birth trauma. They might need something different or a higher dose of something because they're going to perceive pain a little differently. I personally think we should be using an ultrasound for spinals and epidurals just to give us even more chance of having a very simple procedure, not traumatizing them with the needles and getting better outcomes. Testing to make sure that this anesthetic is close to perfect as we can get before we let somebody start, which means, again, slowing things down when you can. Just take a moment to make sure it's good, especially if that woman or birthing person wants to be awake We owe it to them to do everything we can to prevent general anesthesia from a failed spinal or epidural, you know, when that's possible. Anxiety. I'd love all providers to know that there are safe medications out there, safe doses. I think some are still living in the past where they were taught, don't ever give anything until the baby's out. Well, a person could have already dissociated by then from sheer terror. And these individuals need that. They need that for blood pressure help. They need that for, you know, they're tachycardic, they're breathing fast. That's not good for the uterine environment anyway. Right. So considering all of those things to help somebody have a better experience in the operating room and then get started right afterwards with early eating or drinking something in the recovery room. And so, and then of course, optimizing everything for really skin to skin bonding in the operating room. Get this family together if that's what they want to do in whatever framework they have in their minds, whether the dad's going to hold the baby or the mom wants the baby on their chest. We should be doing everything we can to optimize that chance. But it takes focus. It takes attention to details and it takes time. So I guess my 
wish would be for everyone to have a little more time with each individual patient in order to be able to do that. Yeah. Amazing. Tracy, thank you for doing this interview with me. Can you let people know real quickly where they can go to find your practice and anything else you want to close with, I suppose? (laughs) Well, if anyone needs to find me from outside of Pennsylvania or even within the state, my website is theempowermentequation.com and people can reach out to me through that, through a quick email. The clinic at Allegheny Health Network that I run I have a number patients can self-refer if they want, if they're in my area, and I'm just going to give the number 412-526-9520. And you don't even have to be delivering at Allegheny Health Network, but if you want to talk to me, I'm available. I do hear from patients sometimes from across the state. It's been interesting. Well, hearing that 412 number certainly gives me a little butterfly in the belly. You're in my hometown of Pittsburgh, in case you guys weren't able to guess. Tracy's at one of the big hospital systems in Pittsburgh. And as far as I know, UPMC does not have a program like this. I don't know if any hospital has a program like yours. That's a pretty unique place for people to get help. So if you're listening and you want to know more about Tracy, or if you want to support her work, or if you need her help, give her a ring, find her online. And Tracy, in the meantime, thanks again for giving me so much of your time. And I hope you have a great day in clinic. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to reconnect with you. (laughs) Likewise, the feelings are mutual. Thank you so, so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't checked out my website, go to BelovedHolistics.com. Nothing on the show is medical advice, but you certainly can get some help, whether you're a person looking for a birth worker or a holistic gynecologist, or if you're a midwife or other type of birth worker or healthcare professional that wants to have me in your corner, you can find all of that there. You can also find information about my new PRP fertility program. That's all available at BelovedHolistics.com. If anything in this show touched you in some way, if you went back and re-listened to something, share this episode. Give the gift of the Holistic of a Joanne podcast to the people in your life, to your clients, to your family, your friends, your colleagues. Let's get these messages out there. This conversation, like every conversation, I only do it because I think it's important for the community. You can also go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this podcast. Give me a five-star review. Believe it or not, it really matters. And then lastly, support our sponsors. The sponsors make it possible to put out this high-quality content. And as I'm increasing my audio and my video and my different platforms and rebranding and rebuilding, that costs money. My sponsors enable that to happen. I also have an online shop with not only the sponsors discount codes listed, but a wide variety of other products that are going to make you and your family as healthy and vital as possible. Again, I'm Nathan Riley. Thank you so much for listening in to the Holistic OBGYN podcast. We'll see you next week.